Please make your way back to your seat, and if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. There's some on the back table there uh, next to Pastor Steve, and we'd love for you to grab one of those. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, So you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews 9. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story, a short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Telltale Heart. Like, did I get a woohoo right there? Wow. Must be a creepy guy, Frank, because... Poe's stories are mostly creepy. Interesting, though, but... You may have had to read The Telltale Heart in like an English Lit class or something. Um, but for those who don't know the story, I'll give you a, a really brief kind of summary of it. Uh, the, the story told from first-person perspective. So this man is telling a story, and over the course of the story, he is trying to convince you as the reader that he is perfectly sane. And in the course of trying to convince you of that, he convinces you of the opposite, that he is perfectly insane. Uh, and that is seen in the fact that he uh, murders his housemate, mainly because his housemate has a weird eye. So he smothers him in his sleep. He um, he buries him or uh, puts him underneath the floor, underneath the floorboards in the house. And he uh, <clears throat> feels like all is at peace because the uh, the man's eye was driving him crazy. And so he feels like he's at peace now because he's... He's put that thing out of sight and out of mind, and uh, thinks it's a perfect crime, and he uh, is at rest until the police come knocking because one of the neighbors heard a, a cry in the night, and so they come to investigate. Well, he talks to the police officers, and he's, he's perfectly relaxed. He's like, I got nothing to worry about. Perfect crime. And so as he's talking to them, he feels so confident that he actually takes his chair and he places it over the uh, floor, the floorboards where he had hidden the body of the man he had murdered, <clears throat> and he's talking, he's just casual talk. The police officers are pretty quickly, their minds are put at ease, and so they're just chit-chatting, and uh, the murderer hears, <clears throat> keeps talking, <clears throat> talks a little bit louder, <clears throat> he's getting a little bit more agitated, he's got to talk and cover up this heartbeat that he hears. He gets, he gets loud, he's stalking loud, he's stomping around trying to cover it up, and he begins to think, well, these police officers, they're just mocking me because they can obviously hear this. They know what I did, and they're mocking me. And so finally, he just loses it, he says, he's here! He throws the chair to the side, rips up the floorboards, exposes the body, and confesses this to He's crying. And in that story, that that heartbeat, the telltale heart, the heartbeat of the murdered man, is a symbol for the murderer's conscience. <clears throat> that even though he thought he committed a perfect crime, he thought that he was going to get away with it, that it was all perfectly hidden, his conscience wouldn't let him get away with it. It drove him crazy to the point where he ended up confessing. And the point of the story, I think, it's hard to figure out what pose sometimes, but I think the point of the story is that the conscience is a powerful thing. <clears throat> um, but what is the conscience? I 
think as many people understand that the conscience is really just an inner sense of what's right and wrong. And that's probably kind of just a inner culture, common understanding of what the conscience is. But the problem with that is that that inner sense, apart from an external moral compass, can become skewed. And so the conscience then becomes just, well, whatever I feel is right, it must be right. But the Bible describes our conscience as something that operates properly only in relation to God. And we see this really early in the scripture, uh, Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. In verse 8 in uh, Genesis 3, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Well, why did they hide? Because they knew they were guilty. But how did they know that? It's because their sin had awakened their conscience to the fact that they had rebelled against God. So they knew that they were guilty before God. That's, that's what the conscience did in them. And so they hid from God. And that biblical depiction of the conscience led one writer to say that the conscience is that point at which a man or woman confronts God's holiness. The conscience is that point at which a man or woman confronts God's holiness. And <clears throat> so this understanding of the conscience continues throughout the Bible. And we see in Scripture, and we see in our own lives, that a guilty conscience makes us cringe away from God in fear. And a guilty conscience also sets us on the course in life of trying everything we can to still, to appease, to numb our conscience. Until, that is, we come into contact with Jesus Christ. And Jesus accomplished many things by his sacrificial death, but the thing that's emphasized in our passage today is that his death makes it possible for our telltale conscience to stop driving us crazy and to be at rest once and for all. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 9. We stand to honor the reading of God's Word because the Lord is speaking to us through it. I'm summarizing this passage with this statement that Christ has cleansed your conscience so that you can freely serve God. And I hope as we read this, you will see that that is a decent summary, at least. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing. 
just symbolic for the present age, or as I think the, the ESV footnote has a more clear translation, which is symbolic for the age than present. Going on in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is God's word. You may see. So again, the summary of this passage and this message is that Christ has cleansed your conscience so that you can freely serve God. And so this passage does speak about um, our response to what Christ has done, but the main emphasis is on what Christ has done. And so we're going to break this down into three parts. First, that Christ entered a superior Sanctuary, second, that Christ offered a superior sacrifice, and third, Christ enabled superior service. So, lots of S's, alliteration. You're welcome. That's going to help you hopefully retain some of this. So, superior sanctuary, superior sacrifice, and superior service. And I'm going back to that word you've used a lot in this series, uh, that word superior. Um, because this whole section is demonstrating this vivid contrast between the weakness and inferiority of the Old Covenant um, to the power and superiority of the New Covenant in Christ. And as we just read, uh, verses 1 through 10, that they described the, the worship of Israel under the Old Covenant, that that was the only way that they could approach God. And then in verses 11 through 14, they, those verses demonstrate that, um, that that way of approaching God it was just a shadow. It was just a shadow of what Christ would accomplish in a far superior way. And so, rather than take uh, verses 1 through 10 and then go to verses 11 through 14, we're going to kind of look at those side by side as they're compared. So, uh, first we see that Christ entered a superior sanctuary. Look at verse 1, it talks about an earthly place of holiness. And then verse 2 tells us that that earthly place of holiness was a tent. And many of you probably know that in the Old Testament, that tent was called a tabernacle. And it was set up in such a way that God could demonstrate two things. And for one, the tabernacle demonstrated that God wanted to be near His people. That God desired to be near His people. Exodus 25, verse 8 God is talking to Moses, and he says, Let them make me a sanctuary. That sanctuary was a tabernacle. He says, Let them make me a sanctuary for this purpose, that I may dwell in their midst. So this tabernacle, it was God's idea, it was God's design, given by God 
through Moses, and the fact that God gave this to Israel it shows that He wasn't willing to just let humanity forever be separated from Him. That He wasn't willing to leave all of us just uh, wallowing in our sin, hiding in the darkness, hiding shame by our guilty conscience. God moves toward us in love, and so He gave us chosen people this special privilege, this place where His presence would dwell among them, showing them that He was actually for them, that He desired to bless them despite their guilt. So, in our passage, verses 1 through 10, they describe that place, that sanctuary, and like the author of Hebrews, I'm going to say that uh, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Um, but those details are found in the book of Exodus. We preached through that book um, in 2020 and 2021. And so, if you want to learn more about the details of the tabernacle and the significance of it and, um, and all the events surrounding that and the glory of God as it's seen in His rescuing of people out of Egypt, um, you can go to our website and just search for Exodus and all those sermons will magically appear for you and you can listen to those there. But... Um, not going to spend much time on that this morning. But in that series through Exodus, one of the sermons that I preached that focused specifically on the tabernacle, I entitled, Excluded from God's Presence. And I titled it that way because that's the second thing that the tabernacle uh, illustrates for us. It shows that even though God's desire is to draw near to His people, to dwell among them, that there is a massive problem. And the problem is that God is holy, and His people are sinful. And so, access to God under the Old Covenant was very, very limited. And we see that here in Hebrews 9, that there were two sections to the tabernacle. Uh, there were actually three, if we count the outer courtyard, but only two are mentioned here in Hebrews. And the first section, it says, is called the Holy Place. The priest went there regularly, as verse 6 says. But notice that. That it's only the priests who went there regularly. The rest of the people couldn't even get that close to God. Into that kind of um, foyer. Or foyer, if you're fancy. They couldn't even go into that part. The rest of the people couldn't get that close to God. Just the priests. They were forbidden from even entering into that sanctuary at all. And then even the regular priests were excluded from the second section. It's called the Most Holy Place. And that was where the manifest presence of God could be seen. And into that place, that close to the presence of God, only one person, one man, no women, no children, no ordinary priest, just the high priest could go. And as verse 7 says, that, but once a year. Let's read in verse 8. By this... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And as the ESV translates it there, which is symbolic for the present age. And as I said, I think that that last phrase um, is more clearly translated by what we have in the ESV footnote, which is symbolic for the age than present. So it's kind of a historic present. It's talking about that time uh, during the, the uh, Old Covenant ministry in the tabernacle. That's what that first section is representing. And so the holy place, that place, that foyer that drew the boundary between, uh, beyond which no one but the high priest could go, 
That was given, writer of Hebrews is saying, by the Holy Spirit as a kind of visual parable. It's a picture to make it clear that sin separates us from God. The, holy, the way into the holy place is not yet open. It wasn't in the Old Covenant period. And so the tabernacle demonstrates God's desire to be near His people. At the same time, it showed that they couldn't go near So it actually serves to emphasize that there must be a separation between a holy God and sinful people. And, and that's one of the reasons why the Old Testament place of worship was an inferior place. But the uh, author of Hebrews also emphasizes in verse 11 that this was inferior also because it was just an earthly tabernacle. It was of this creation. It was made with human hands. It wasn't the true dwelling place of God. And it wasn't even some kind of, like, portal where the high priest could go into and be beamed up into the heavenly presence of God, where God dwelled in unapproachable life. It wasn't even that. The Old, Old Testament high priest entered just into an earthly shadow of God's dwelling place. Now, verse 11, but, it's a strong word of contrast, but, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places. So Christ didn't enter into a shadow. He entered into the reality. He entered into the heavenly tabernacle, into the true presence of God. And this is something that we've seen a number of times already in the book of Hebrews. One of those is just in the previous chapter, the beginning of chapter 8. In verse 1, it says, now, this is the or now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. I hope you understand that this isn't just interesting information about Jesus. Like, it's just telling us where he's at, what he's doing. For believers, this actually dramatically shifts our reality, because not only is Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, but Ephesians 2 tells us that because we are united to Christ by faith, we are raised up with Christ, and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. So Jesus has truly drawn near to God, entering into the true tabernacle, and he brings us into that holy of holies with him the moment that we're united to him by faith. In Christ, the desire of God to be near his people and that distance created by sin, those things are reconciled in Christ. And so what this means is that if you could roll back the curtain of the physical right now and look into that spiritual reality, you would see that right now, if you're a believer, you have a what even the, the high priest in the Old Testament never had. You are in that place, far superior to the Old Testament tabernacle. You're in that place in the presence of God, and you're not burnt to a crisp. You're not crushed by the weight of His glory. This is the reality that you're not only there, spiritually in the presence of God, but that you are there welcomed, you're there loved, you're there accepted. 
by the God of the universe. This is a glorious reality that you and I are in that place, far superior to the earthly tabernacle, because Christ has entered in that superior sanctuary. And so, that's the first thing that I want you to see in this passage. How did Christ accomplish that? Why was he able to enter into the heavenly tabernacle when even the best of the Old Testament priests never had that privilege? And then, why are you and I, wretched sinners that we are, why are we able to enter with him into the presence of God? It's because, second point, Christ offered a superior sacrifice. Christ offered a superior sacrifice. And in order to help us see what made Christ's sacrifice superior, the author of Hebrews, he first reminds us in this section of what the Old Covenant sacrifices looked like. A little bit. There are actually a whole bunch of sacrifices that God required under the Old Covenant, but the focus here is on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that one day out of the year when the high priest was allowed to enter in to that intersection of the tents, into the Holy of Holies. So that here in Hebrews 9 is what he's talking about, the Day of Atonement. Now, verse 7, But into the second, talking about second section, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. I'm going to pause and think about that word, unintentional, the unintentional sins of the people. Did you even know this, that you can commit unintentional sins? That you can dishonor God without, without even being aware of it? And that your conscience can be burdened by the guilt of sins that you weren't even aware that you had committed consciously? And I think Unintentional sins are probably easiest to see in sins of omission and things that God has required but that we fail to do. Uh, they can they can happen in other ways too. Actually, uh, as Pastor Steve pointed out as he was looking over my sermon notes, we can sin even when we are doing something that's good. We can unintentionally sin by having wrong motives in it. And so unintentional sins lurk all around. And if you think about sins of omission, um, it would be something like not giving God thanks for all his gifts. It's unintentional. We don't intend not to give God thanks. We just don't. Or uh, failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. Generally unintentional. We don't intend to be selfish or self-centered. We just are. But even... This passage is saying, even those unintentional sins separate us from God, they bear on our conscience, and they require a sacrifice. Which, I think, just demonstrates how desperately we need a sacrifice in order to come into the presence of God. But the blood that the high priest brought into the tabernacle, and anything that you or I we try to do to ease our conscience, is going to be an inadequate Sacrifice. And we see the inadequacy of these kinds of sacrifices in their effects. So, verse 9 According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect.
the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement only provided an external and ritual cleansing. They left the conscience of the worshiper feeling guilty because their actual guilt still remained. Later on in Hebrews, in chapter 10, the writer makes this even more clear. He says it straight out. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Otherwise, and this is again in chapter 10, he says, wouldn't those offerings have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's the main thing that the Old Testament sacrifices really accomplish. They serve as a reminder of sins year after year. Year after year, the, on the Day of Atonement, the people were saying, our conscience tells us that our guilt remains, and so we're going to make these sacrifices. And these sacrifices show that our guilt still remains. And then we're going to have to make these sacrifices again and again. But, again, but, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve living God. Those sac- sacrifices could never purify the conscience because they only dealt with the externals. As Jesus said in Mark 7, it's, it's, it's what's inside of us that actually defiles us. It doesn't have anything to do with religious rituals. Jesus said it's, it's from out of the heart that all the things that defile us, hatred, bitterness, slander, these are the things that actually defile us, the things deep within. And so we need a deep inner cleansing that religious rituals can never accomplish. Through Christ, God has done what the law could not do. Look at this passage again and see verse 14. How committed God is to this. The entire Trinity was involved in purifying your conscience. Christ the Son offered himself to God the Father through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. God made a far superior sacrifice, one that actually cleanses and purifies our conscience, one that sets our conscience at rest by making a sacrifice that actually takes away our guilt. It wasn't an external cleansing. Jesus Christ shed his blood in our place for our sins so that God now looks on you and says, not guilty. You're not guilty. You're not guilty. So come out of hiding. You don't have anything to fear. You're not guilty. It's kind of like this. If you've had a diagnosis of terminal cancer, the doctor says, 
bad. But with regular chemo treatments, we can stave it off, we can give you some time. So you go and you live an okay life, but every time you go back for treatment, it reminds you cancer's still there. That's what those old covenant sacrifices were like. Year after year, a reminder that the cancer of sin still remained. But Christ's sacrifice was like a surgeon going in after that tumor and coming out after the operation and saying, we got it all. We got it all. There's no cancer left in your body. The sacrifice of Jesus is not a temporary fix. Verse 12 says that by his blood, Jesus secured an eternal redemption for you. And redemption means, we, we kind of use that as a generic term, but it actually means to be purchased out of slavery. When you live with a guilty conscience, you are a slave to it. You are working. Everything you do is an attempt to quiet your conscience. To stop that telltale heart from beating, and Christ sets you free from that tyranny for eternity. That's what redemption means, and by his superior sacrifice, Christ cut out the cancer of sin, and he says to you, there's not a trace of guilt left. You don't have to live in fear of God's wrath. You don't have to live in hiding. You don't have to be afraid to come out to God. Your guilt is taken away, so... Come out, walk in the light, walk in joy, walk in the presence of God, and stop trying to do good things to ease your conscience. You're free to live in sweet fellowship with God as your Father. Are you afraid to come to God? Are you tired of hiding? Are you tired of trying to cover over your sin, ease your conscience with the thin fig leaves of religious activities, trying to be a good person, do the right things. If you're tired, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He says to all who labor and are heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest for your soul. Come to Jesus. Clean conscience is a glorious, glorious thing. But that is actually not the end game for Jesus. There's a purpose for purifying our conscience, and that is to enable superior service. Let's look at verse 14 again. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the aim of this great work that the triune God has done in purifying our conscience. It's to set us free to serve the living God. Looking at this this week and thinking, what's the, what's the connection? How does having a clean conscience enable us to serve God? Or if you think about it the other way, how does having a defiled conscience hinder our service to God? That, that word um, serve there, it, 
it is connected to the Old Testament uh, service of the priest. It, it, was, it was really worship. You could translate that as worship. So how does having a defiled, guilty conscience keep us from truly worshiping God? And I think it's this. I think it's that when we have a guilty, defiled conscience, that we are enslaved constantly to serve for the sake of easing our conscience. For the sake of giving ourselves relief from that burden. Which, when it comes down to it, if our conscience is guilty, we're actually always just serving ourselves. And there's actually no such thing as being free from service. There's no such thing as being free from serving. You can either serve yourself, attempting to assuage your guilty conscience, or you can serve God out of a purified conscience, no longer trying to earn forgiveness, no longer trying to free yourself from the feeling of guilt, but actually free to live in service to God. And worship of God, that's, that's actually what you were created for. So it's, it's not a burden. When we're free from a guilty conscience, we're free to worship God, which is the thing that we were made to do. And yet, even knowing this, as Christians, we can fall into one of two ditches here, I think. And one ditch is that we continue serving God in an attempt to ease our conscience. It's just we do God, Godward things, but we're still working to ease our own conscience because we aren't fully embracing the meaning of our redemption. We aren't owning the cleansing that Jesus has accomplished. We're trying to enter back into that old tabernacle. We're trying to make our own sacrifices to God instead of claiming the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus for ourselves. The whole force of this passage is to say to us as Christians, don't do that. Don't do that. Those old ways of easing your conscience, they will never work. Better things have come in Christ. This now is the time of reformation. Look at verse 10. That word reformation, that means renewal, restoration. It means the time when things will be made right, when the things that were useless and fading away are going to be wiped away. And in Christ, new things have come, better things have come, things that actually are effective in taking away your guilt and purifying your conscience. Coming of Christ, the old has passed away, the new has come. That old way of trying to ease your conscience is gone. Don't go back to it. That's no way to live. So that's one ditch. There's another ditch on the opposite side of the road. Funny how ditches work that way. There's one on one side and then one on the other. There is a ditch on the opposite side of the road. We often bounce back and forth between these two, I think, as Christians. And that ditch is something like this. Well, Jesus did it all, so it doesn't really matter what I do. I can, I can serve God if I want to, but I don't really have to. And this passage doesn't allow for that either. It doesn't allow us to be, if we're truly saved, to be comfortable in that ditch. Because the whole argument of this passage contrasting the inadequate work of the Old Covenant worship and the perfectly effective work of what Christ has done in cleansing our conscience, it all comes to a crescendo here at the end of verse 14. Why did Christ offer himself? Well, you say, to redeem us. 
Yes. Why else? To cleanse my conscience. Yes. And what's the purpose? What's the aim? See, in verse 14, it's to serve the living God. Now, what is the living God seeking? John chapter 4, I read this this morning in my time in the Word. Um, the Father is seeking true worshipers, those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, worshipers who will worship Him not doing dead works for the benefit of easing our conscience, but those who will do the work prepared for us by God before the ages began to His glory and to the benefit of our neighbors. To be true worshipers. This is what God is seeking. And so to be redeemed is to say, in the words of 1 Corinthians 6, I no longer live for myself. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God with my body and all that I do. Your conscience has been purified so that, in the words of Romans 12, you can offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Romans 6 speaks very clearly about this and beautifully about it. Starting verse 17 of Romans 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now you might think, I thought this was the gospel. I thought, I thought Romans was like the gospel book. How is this good news? How is being a slave of righteousness a good thing? Well, let's go on to verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, there's no escape from serving. You can spend your life without Jesus, attempting to cleanse your own conscience, attempting to remove that burden. But if you do, unless you manage to make your conscience callous, you will one day end up on your deathbed in fear because you will know that you did not balance the scales. And worse than that, on Judgment Day, you'll end up trembling before the judge of the universe because your conscience will declare that you are condemned even before the judge passes that same sentence on you. So that's one way to live. Or you can let your conscience be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, trusting in what He has accomplished for you. And you can give every single moment and every aspect of your life as worship to God, and knowing that at the end of it all, as Romans 6 says, eternal life awaits you. Eternal life. Not as a reward, not as a, 
payment for what you've managed to accomplish in this life. But as a free gift from God, purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And to live that way, to live with a clean, purified conscience, to live not, not in slavery to trying to appease my conscience, not trying to earn something from God, but living in freedom, living in the assurance that I will receive eternal life because Christ lived perfectly. Because Christ has died in my place, that that gift will be mine. That's the best way to live. In fact, it's the only way to truly live. And for us as Christians, this this passage, I think, sheds light for us on uh, communion, which we're about to take. This Lord's Supper. The communion meal isn't a religious ritual that we perform every week in an attempt to ease our conscience. Shouldn't be that. In fact, God forbid that it would become that for any of us. No, communion is an opportunity to once again say, God, I am walking in the light with you. I'm not hiding. I'm not sinless. But I'm also not guilty. I'm not guilty because Christ has entered into heaven on my behalf by the power of His shed blood. He's purified my conscience. And so, God, I am again today receiving your declaration of not guilty as I take this bread and this juice to receive your declaration of not guilty. And in communion, we say to God, I'm committing again today to walk in the freedom that Christ purchased for me. I'm committing again today to live my life for your glory, not for the sake of trying to feel better about myself, committed to living for you. That's what communion is for you as a believer. And if you are here as an unbeliever, then this morning, instead of inviting you to come take communion, I want to invite you to give up. To give up. To give up trying to still the telltale heart of your conscience that tells you over and over again you're guilty. Try hard. You fail. You're guilty. Try hard. You fail. You're pathetic. You're guilty. Give up trying to steal that in your heart. You'll never be able to do it. Come to Jesus. Trust in Him to purify your conscience and to give you a new purpose for life. And if you would like to know more about what that means and how you do that, I would love to talk with you. I'll be down here in front during communion. Uh, Pastor Steve will be in the back. Either of us would love to talk with you, pray with you. Um, if you're not comfortable maybe doing that this morning, you fill out a connection card and just indicate that you would like to talk with one of the pastors. You can give that to us this morning or just put it in the offering box before you leave. We would love the opportunity to, to lead you into this freedom, the joy of walking with God 
as you were made in the way that God created. And so that's for unbelievers. But if you are a believer here this morning, whether you're a member of Pioneer Church or not, if you're trusting in Christ, if He is your hope, and if you've had that faith um, affirmed in a church by baptism, then we would invite you to come and take communion. Uh, I'll ask you to stand in just a moment. You'll exit to your left. Come up here to one of these tables, take the communion elements, and go back to your seat on the right. And you can take communion there with your family, or by yourself, or just with other believers around you. Um, and if you want to know more about baptism and why we ask that if you haven't been baptized, you not take communion, um, you can come and talk to one of us, or again, you can put that on the connection card. But um, I just encourage you this morning. Maybe if you're a believer and you this week, this month, this year, realize that you have been you've been in that ditch where you're trying you're trying to appease your conscience. You're doing a lot of the right things, and then you fail. This morning, just take a deep breath and say, "God, help me to know, to believe, to believe." that I'm not guilty. And it's not in me, it's in Christ. Let's pray, and then you can receive communion. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that they would know the peace and the joy, the hope that is theirs in Christ. Lord, we receive again this morning, Jesus promises, your grace, and we ask for your power to walk in freedom and hope. For the glory of your name, amen. You can stand, and for those who should, come to the Lord's table.